whether it was just being with family or celebrating opening presents, especially, hopefully, celebrating the birth of our king. But something happened yesterday afternoon, and it actually happens every year. And I've come to anticipate it and know that it's coming, and it's, it's that Christmas letdown. I don't know if you ever have that, but Christmas afternoon for me is a little depressing. I feel a little bit empty. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we've been looking forward to this day all the way since, like, what? Before even Halloween, there was stuff on the shelves, right? So we've been anticipating this day, this event. We've been buying presents. We've been decorating all these different things. And then we get there, and we do it, and then it's over. And now it's empty. Now I have to come up with something else to look forward to. And that's kind of the place I want to start from for today in a, kind of a, an investigation into how do we avoid that or how do we move to somewhere new to where we have something to look forward to as we get ready to enter a new year. Uh, and so I hope that uh, for us, when we leave this place, we have uh, maybe a perspective on that, that that helps us to prepare for this coming year, no matter what it throws our way. Let's open in prayer. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for yesterday, the fact that we could celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus and uh, all that means to us in our lives, in our daily lives. But I pray for today as well um, as we look for what's next. And I pray that each person here would be open to receiving from you something new and something uh, profound that helps them as they move forward. Bless us today, be with those of us who are unable to attend and just ask for safety as we travel and, and go about our days as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a look at a psalm this morning, and it's Psalm 121. And I would like it if we would read this together. And if you aren't too tired from the great worship set, then let's go ahead and stand for this as well. This is Psalm 121, it's eight verses, and I would like for us to read them together. Here we go. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slip nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Thanks. The word of the Lord. Psalm 121 is one of 15 psalms of ascent. And they're Psalm 120 through 134, 35. And these psalms were typically recited by the pilgrims heading up to Jerusalem. And I think that content is valuable because when we look at the first verse, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. The people who originally were saying this were literally walking through an area that had mountains and they were looking up. And they're saying, where does my help come from? And you might think mountains are glorious and majestic and blessing and power and things like that, but it may be just as likely that these mountains were actually threats. 
maybe there were wild animals in those mountains. Maybe there were robbers. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 10, he mentions these mountains. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And this is the story of the Good Samaritan. And so we get this context that these mountains may not be very safe. So as you're walking through the mountains and saying, I'm looking to the mountains, where does my help come from? It's somebody who's actually maybe a little bit anxious, a little bit nervous about what's next. Sometimes in order to answer a question, where does my help come from? It might be good to answer the opposite question first. Where does my help not come from? And I think in this case, this is one of those questions that we have asked and answered so many times as Christians, and yet we still need a reminder again and again. And we're not alone. If you look back in the Bible and you Google or you do the, the word search of, did evil in the eyes of the Lord? In the Old Testament, it comes up again and again and again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, meaning they keep forgetting where their help comes from. They need to ask again, and they need to be reminded again. And so hopefully today, we can be reminded this as well. But where does it not come from? I am a trained teacher, and I've actually been teaching for about 20 years. I got my degree in the early aughts. And in my career as a teacher, there is only one time out of that about 20 years that I ever taught the exact same thing two consecutive years. Now, if you're a teacher, you know that the first year of teaching is always the worst. It's always the hardest. Well, for me, for some reason, I had a first year teaching experience every time I taught. And it was actually because of my own, it was my own doing. I would start teaching and then I would start thinking about, you know what would be better is if I taught this class instead of this one. Or what if I wrote this curriculum here? And I would suggest to my bosses every year, hey, could I do something different next year? And I would begin to make my way towards what I considered my ideal, uh, my ideal job. And so one year, I would add something that would be fun. And then the next year, I'd get a little bit, little bit better and I'd make a little bit of a better adjustment to the point where I got all the way to my perfect schedule. The ideal, the pinnacle, this is the best job I could have. I had the classes I wanted, I was an administrator, I had power, I had another job on the side where I did video editing and all of that. And that's when I discovered this quote. It's hard to be really depressed until your dreams come true. I had climbed the ladder of success by myself, with my own talents and my own successes. And when I got to the top, that's when I realized it was leaning against the wrong wall. I'm all the way up here, and I'm all by myself. Might not have even been leaning against a wall at all. Maybe it's just here, this island here, all alone. I put my help in my own stuff, and when I got to the top, I was depressed. And what's worse, not only am I way up here on this wrong ladder, I've got to get back down to somewhere level before I could reorient towards a place that I really want to go. And the way down a ladder, you can do it two ways. You can go easily, slowly, carefully, 
or you could fall quick and violently. And for me, actually, I fell off my ladder. If you're putting your hope, and if your help is dependent on yourself, or even in a relationship with somebody else, or even in the number of likes you get, or hearts, or thumbs up, or anything else on social, anything like that, you're, you're probably going to be uh, putting your help in the wrong place. So let's take a look at verse 2. My help, this is the obvious, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Again, back to the mountains. If you're looking at the mountains and you're wondering, where's my help come from? And then you realize, my help comes from the one who made those mountains. That's where my help is. That's a much better uh, perspective, right? One of the challenges we face with this, though, is that some of us, maybe we haven't climbed the wrong ladder, maybe we are trusting God for our help, but we're doing it on our own time. We're doing it with our own uh, expectations in mind. And God is not often, uh, in my experience, uh, confined to my time frames. He doesn't often do things in the, in the speed at which I would want him to do. The other day I was uh, up at the intersection up on Crater Lake and uh, the one by the, by the movie theater and it was weather like this and I got to a point where the intersection didn't know I was there and so I was sitting there and I was watching cars go by every other direction and I kept getting past and I never got my green light. Three cycles through, nobody let me through and so I texted my wife and I said, I'm so frustrated, I'm stuck at this intersection and I can't get through it. And she kind of smugly replied, what makes you think you'd be any happier on the other side of the intersection? <laughs> to which I quipped, I'm heading home to be with you, Jack. I'm going to be happier there. And you know what? She was right, because when I got home, she was mad at me. <laughs> Something about calling her Jack and like, so... I can say this because she's over there in CM and not, not listening, and so as long as none of you tell her that I said that, and as long as this isn't being recorded. We want things to happen quickly. We're in a hurry sometimes, and even with God, we ask, hurry up, God, and yet God is not a God of immediacy always. Sometimes he is, and thank God he is, but there are times when he takes his time, right? Abraham. 75 years old, you're going to have a son. When? 25 years later, right? Jesus, we know a few things about him from his birth and childhood, but almost everything that we learn about Jesus starts 30 years into his life. Even the nativity scene has been condensed to include the wise men on the same night that the shepherds came, and we know that they were at least 40 days later, if not maybe up to two years God takes his time sometimes, and sometimes that's hard for us. One thing the Lord has been teaching me, especially lately, is that concept of give us this day our daily bread. He has been helping me pray that on a regular basis. When I get anxious about what's next, he's reminding me again and again, God, give me today what I need. Let tomorrow take care of itself. And when I release that to him, because we cannot control tomorrow, today can be a little bit less of a burden for us. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. 
He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Have you ever been watching TV with somebody and you make a comment about what you're watching and there's no response? You laugh or something and you try to connect with that person and you look over and they're asleep. This has never happened to me, but it happens to my wife all the time. And because of it, she has trust issues with me when we're watching a show because she doesn't know that she can trust that I watch something, even though I'm sitting right next to her because I might be sleeping. So she'll have to check first. Hey, are you awake? Okay, now I can trust you to tell you this thing. God, at this psalm, relieves us of that concern with God. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. That means he's always there, and we don't have to worry about the possibility that he might have missed it even if he was there. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Now this is poetry. And we have the sun, and we have the moon. And with this is meant to incorporate these two extremes and everything in between. So what, we're sa- what, he's, what the psalmist is saying here is that you're not going to get hurt at any point. That's what it seems to be indicating here. And then finally, 7 and 8, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Again, remember, this is for the pilgrims going to Jerusalem and coming from Jerusalem. And they do this coming and going on a yearly basis. So this would be an encouragement to those original people who are reciting this. And hopefully it is to us as well, right? It's a good psalm. It's encouraging, right? And yet... Do we really believe it? He will not let your foot slip. He will keep you from harm. He will watch over your life. Have you ever read this, but then had something there saying, yeah, but I slipped. I want to introduce you to uh, two friends of mine. Their names are Josh and Carrie McIntosh. I want to tell you a little story about them. Josh and Carrie served with us while we were in Senegal, West Africa. And they came out separately, but they met in Senegal, and they quickly realized that they were meant to spend their lives together, and so they got engaged while in Africa. And this story took place about 10 years ago while they were there together. Now, for just a little bit of a context, because, and I don't blame you for this, because I had to look up where Senegal was too, even as I was headed there. But Senegal's in Africa. This is Africa. On the westernmost point of that hump is a country called Senegal. Senegal looks a little bit like a Muppet. On the westernmost point of Senegal is the capital city of Dakar. That's where we lived. On the westernmost point of Dakar is a little island, and it's called Ingor Island. It's a little fishing village, and uh, it's, got, it's a great little tourist spot. And the way to get there is on a boat like this. Mindy and I are actually in the back in the center there. They put about 50 people on these little motorized, um, big motorized canoes, and you go the few hundred meters across the water to get there, all right? And so one day, we went with Josh and Carrie. Mindy and I went with Josh and Carrie, and we went up to the back of the island, which is shown here. So here's a picture of Josh and Carrie sitting on a bench. And then if you look at the other two pictures, you see that same bench, and that gives you some perspective as to where we were. And... Uh, and it's just an amazing spot with great photo ops, and so we chose to go there for their engagement pictures, all right? While we were there, 
I was the photographer, Mindy was helping me out, and we set them up right up on, uh, just a little bit off that ledge to get a really epic shot of them with the ocean in the background. And it was gonna be beautiful. It was gonna be stunning. And right before I took the first picture, the rock that Carrie was sitting on gave way. And it was probably about that far from the ledge, but for some freak accidental reason, the momentum of the rock giving out the way that it did and the speed at which it gave out, it carried her over the edge. And she fell 30 feet to the rocks at the bottom of the island, right where the water was hitting. Josh had her by the, by the shirt, and the shirt tore. And it was too steep to see what happened to her. We couldn't get to the edge to look, to know. And so I had to put my camera down and I had to get down to her. And I had to go around a bit and down this, wasn't even a path, I don't even know how I got there, but I got down to her and <laughs> Josh yelled from the top, is she alive? And I was able to say yes. But she was very badly hurt. She had a shattered wrist. She had a broken foot. Later found out she had a broken back and countless abrasions and bruises and gashes. So we're at the bottom of this cliff. And she's lying there. And she's conscious, but not really. And I know you're not allowed to move a person who fell, but the sun is going down and the tide is coming up and we've got to do something. And Josh made his way down and eventually, and Mindy heard us from up top and she would call out to some fishermen who came and, um, you know, they, they know their stuff. And so one of these big, massive, African fishermen climbed down to where we were and actually picked Carrie up and carried her up around the corner and up and actually all the way across the island to a little motorboat that we got into and we took it back across the channel and we got her into a pickup truck and we drove her to the hospital and we were able to get her to medical care. But it was terrifying. It was traumatic. It was so scary. And honestly, as a result of it, it caused a real crisis of faith for me and for, I think, for all four of us. We were going to celebrate a new life with Carrie and Josh. Why did you let her foot slip? And I was mad at God. And I didn't really know what to do with that. And in fact, I had this psalm in front of me at that point. And what I knew was, the psalm is true, but she slipped. What am I going to do about that? You might be here with probably not a story like that, but something, a slip, where you say, God, I think this may be true, but I slipped. And what is that about? So what I want to try to do for the next couple minutes is just share my process over the last 10 years in trying to reconcile these two things and, and bring these two things out of tension. If you've just slipped, this might be not, not be a message for you to apply to your life right now. Maybe tuck it away and see how it feels in a, in a little bit. It's kind of like that person saying, oh, Romans 8.28. 
God works all things together for good when you've just been gut punched. You know, you don't need that right then. But maybe this is something that in time can, can help you. I pray that it, it does. And I pray that I'm not bringing something up for some of you that's hard. Um, but here's my process. I had to ask myself, do I truly believe that what the Bible says about God is true? And that's a huge question that you have to come to terms with yourselves. And it's really important. Is the Bible true? Is God who the Bible says he is? It's a lot easier to just be like, nope, <laughs> she slept. Obviously, the Bible's a lie. But if God is true and the Bible's true, then we got to figure out what to do with this tension. So it got me thinking about this psalm in particular. And what, for one thing, it's a, it's, a, it's a poem, right? So it's not supposed to be literal. We've all slipped. Some of us slipped today. So it's not literal. But what does it mean? For one, there are times when my foot slips because my foot is planted on the wrong thing. When I was on this ladder, if God didn't let my foot slip, I'd still be on the ladder, and that would have been a bad thing. So there may be times when our foot slips, and it's... it's actually for the better. But there are also times when our foot slips because we live in a fallen world where rocks crumble and cars crash and COVID and cancer and ice exist. And it's not your fault, but it happens. So here's where I landed on this. And some other people smarter than me can back me up and maybe you agree, maybe, maybe you need to process it yourselves. But I don't think we're talking about feet slipping. When Carrie slipped, she fell. But what remained stable? Her status. Her status as God's daughter, righteous, justified, saved by the blood of Jesus. Nothing that we do and nothing that happens to us can change that. We can't slip from that position. That's secure. Similarly, he will keep me from harm. He will watch over my life. Well, how can he do that if we do get hurt and we do die? Again, the only way that this makes sense to me is this, this is from an eternal perspective. He protects our soul. He protects our relationship with him. But it brings up that whole tricky thing of God's sovereignty, right? How can a good God be, be uh, here when evil exists? And how do we understand what is from God and what is from the fallen world? And I don't have time to get into that. I know it's a struggle that we all face. And one of my biggest answers is I just don't know. We just can't know it for sure. But what we can do is we can be careful of our expectations. There's a, a French Franciscan priest named Richard Roth who says, every expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. If we expect God to never let us, like, actually slip, and yet we do, and then we blame God for the slip, that's a resentment that we hold against God, when maybe that's not really how God always operates. So instead of blaming God for something because we know exactly the right way it should have happened, and so therefore we were right and God was wrong, we need to take a step back and look at it from a bigger perspective and allow some space for a little bit of mystery. It's okay if we don't know. But the question is, do you have the faith to believe that that's okay, that you don't know, but that he does? Because if we can do that, 
we might realize that where once we thought God failed, instead we actually see an opportunity for him to reveal his glory. When we look back at this event with Josh and Carrie and this incident, we don't ever say God made Carrie fall off the cliff. But what we can say is God was there and he was not asleep. And there's evidence to that. When Carrie landed at the bottom of the cliff, where there were jagged rocks everywhere around her, the, the exact specific place that she landed did not have any jagged rocks like this. It had two rocks like this. And I think of that line from the song, my soul finds rest in your embrace. It didn't cushion her fall, but it saved her life. Because where she landed, she was positioned in a way that when I got down there and I saw her, for one, I could actually tell that her back wasn't severely broken. And for two, as I looked up and I saw a swell coming at us, I could tell her, Carrie, I'm here, you're not alone, but there's a wave coming and it's gonna wash over you, but I'll be here. And when that wave came, it actually lifted her out of that spot, right up into my arms. It's not anything I ever would have done on my own, but that decision was made for me and I had Carrie with me and I was able to bring her up to a safer space so that she could get out. That's because of that little spot there. There are countless other ways where we actually know God was there in that instance, not only from that moment, but all the other things that happened as a result of that. Love for you guys to maybe meet them someday and they can tell you all those stories because there's a lot of good ones there. Carrie puts it this way. When I asked her about it just this week, it's hard not to question why he spared me and not others. But I found rest knowing that what God reveals to us belongs to us and what is secrecy belongs to him, even though my human mind can't comprehend it all. If you ask Josh and Carrie about that day and say, was it worth it? And say, no. They wouldn't do it over again. They wouldn't repeat it the same way. But were they, was, were they able to make it matter? Was God able to be glorified in the event and in the aftermath? Yes, because he's sovereign and he makes good things happen even out of bad circumstances. We're gonna conclude with a song. So if we could have the worship team make their way back up. This is one of my favorite hymns. I asked that they would play this one. This is It Is Well With My Soul. And the reason why I asked for this song is because of its origin. The origin of this song, the songwriter, he, he lived in the, the mid-1800s. He lived in Chicago, and he had a really rough go. He had five children. He lost one to, to a disease, and then the Chicago fire wiped out his business and his home. And then he sent his family on a voyage across the sea to Europe. And he wasn't able to join them, but he sent his wife and four daughters. And while they were at sea, the ship crashed. And when, um, when his wife got to the other side, she just sent a, just a haunting telegraph, saved alone, is what it said. So when he went to join her, he knew he was joining her, but not his daughters. And yet when he got to the point in the ocean where his daughters had drowned, he was able to write these words. And it's a song of 
hurt and loss, but it's also a song of hope as well. So let's sing this together, and then I'll conclude. Oh, uh-huh.